could speak for all of us, Nikki, that we are so thankful to be able to partner with Mosaic and have, uh, of course, for, for many, many years. And uh, I know many of you volunteer with Mosaic, um, and I, I know that they could use even more volunteers. And many of you uh, give financially to them. My family certainly does as part of our family uh, ministry, and uh, I know that they can uh, certainly use your resources and put them to good effect. I mean, you even hear testimony. Four children have been saved even in the, in the recent weeks and months because of this ministry here in Virginia. And so I'm not sure you could get um, a much better return on, on an investment into life and into helping these women who are in such desperate need. Of course, t- today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Um, this is not Hamilton Baptist Church's Sanctity of Human Life. This is a national holiday. And we mark it on the third Sunday of January every year uh, because the third Sunday most closely proximates the Supreme Court ruling Roe versus Wade, which was on January 22nd, 1973. And so as is kind of our our tradition here at Hamilton Baptist Church, we will once again recognize and proclaim so that it will be firmly rooted in our hearts that all human life is worthy of dignity, value, and respect, and is sacred in God's eyes. And so we will uh, rejoice in those truths today, even as we consider uh, the incredible plight and uh, evil of abortion this morning. So I want to invite you to turn to Psalm 106. That'll be our passage that we'll consider Psalm 106. You'll want to find your way there. And while you're finding your way there, I do want to uh, update you on our Christmas offering, our Lottieman Christmas offering. I think this is also testifies to the sanctity of human life as that offering was given in order to take the gospel to the nations to support our foreign missionaries. We had a goal of $50,000. Very happy to report this morning that Hamilton Baptist Church gave $62,347 to a Lottieman Christmas offering. Can we give praise to God for that? I'm very, very pleased. I think that testifies to the health of our church that we long to be used by God to take the gospel to the nations. And so I praise God for your sacrifice in doing so. So hopefully you found your way to Psalm 106. We're going to, you notice it's a very long psalm. We're simply going to consider some selection of verses from it. We'll begin our reading in verse 36 of Psalm 106. Hear now the word of God. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations, so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. 
He caused them to be pitied by all who held them captive. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for this opportunity to come to your word. We look forward to it. I trust every Sunday that you might speak to us. What a great joy it is that, to know that our great God has for us revealed himself through his scripture and wants us to understand him and know him and follow him. And so we come now with eager hearts that we might learn more about you and more about ourselves and more about this world from your scripture. So we pray that you would help us. In particular, we pray that you would help us to stand for justice and righteousness and the hurting and the needy and the oppressed, even as you have taught us in Christ and through your scripture. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. It was on November 25th, year 2020, so about less than two months ago, that Megan, the Duchess of Sussex, wrote an opinion piece for the New York Times entitled, The Losses We Share. She writes, it was a July morning that began as ordinarily as any other day. Make breakfast, feed the dogs, take vitamins, find that missing sock, pick up the rogue crayon that rolled under the table, throw my hair in a ponytail before getting my son up from his crib. After changing his diapers, I felt a sharp cramp. I dropped to the floor with him in my arms, humming a lullaby to keep us both calm. The cheerful tune, a stark contrast to my sense that something was not right. She then writes, I knew as I clutched my firstborn child that I was losing my second. It is a moving article in which the Duchess of Sussex describes the pain of losing a child due to miscarriage. Later, the Duchess writes, losing a child means carrying an almost unbearable grief. Of course, I, I'm aware that many of you here have experienced that grief. Certainly, even bringing it up brings back emotions of my own experience in my family with the grief of, of miscarriage. I wonder, when we think about those things and we experience the grief in our hearts, why there's this pain? Why is, as Megan writes, there's almost unbearable grief? It is because, of course, because the child that is lost through miscarriage is just that, a child, a baby. It was earlier in 2020 that Christy Teigen, also a television personality, shared that she, too, was grieving the loss of what she calls, quote, her unborn baby. She uses the word baby, the Duchess of Sussex uses the word child, neither woman used the term biological material. Neither of them speak of the loss of a fetus. Two mothers who know differently that the inhabitant of the womb is a baby. Their child, sadly, almost unbearably, has died. And yet when it comes to abortion, we, we don't speak of the baby in the womb. The baby 
in the womb is a baby as long as the baby is wanted. But if the baby is not wanted, then we use other terms, more technical terms like fetus. We attempt to depersonalize the child. It's Albert Moeller who writes, we talk about the unexpected and unwanted byproduct of reproductive activity. It is somewhat, I think, terrifying the way we use language when it comes to this, that, that what we know is a child in our mind ceases to be a child simply because that child is no longer wanted. And sadly, 800,000 American babies were unwanted in the year 2020. Their lives were ended due to abortion. It's one out of six American pregnancies uh, encounter elective abortion. It is reported, as you perhaps know, that about 300,000 Americans died last year from COVID-19. Almost three times that many died from abortion. Abortion was the leading cause of death in America in the year 2020, outpacing COVID, outpacing cancer, outpacing heart disease. And in fact, abortion has been the leading cause of death in America every single year since 1973. You say, why 1973? Well, it was, of course, in 1973 that the Supreme Court decided that a woman has a constitutional right to abortion. Since then, some 62 million American babies have been aborted. And yet America is not the first people to turn on their own children. Sadly, this took place in ancient Israel. We find ourselves here in Psalm 106. It is a powerful psalm that lists the sins of Israel and their consequences. Derek Kidner calls it a Psalm 106, a record of failure. Richard Phillips says it is a miserable tale of the people's faithlessness. It is one sin after another after another, and yet it is somewhat extraordinary in light of that how the psalm ends. You know, in verse 48, when the psalmist concludes, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And you notice this little call uh, for response, and let the people say, you see it there? That's you, you're the people. Let's try that again. And let the people say, Amen. praise the Lord. And so we see that, that the psalmist ends on a, a, a note of praise. In fact, it begins in the same manner. You look in verse 1 of this psalm when it says, Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And so in other words, though Israel's sin is great, they begin and end this psalm remembering that God is greater. And so even this morning as we consider the tragedy of abortion... Let's follow this psalmist's advice that our God abounds with grace, that our God is worthy of praise, that our God is glorious and wonderful. And yet despite God's kindness and greatness, Israel rebelled against him. You see the list of sins begins in verse 6, kind of an introductory. When we read, both we and our fathers have sinned, we have committed iniquity, uh, we have done wickedness. And then off he goes. Verse 7, you find out they forgot God's love and power when he brought them through the Red Sea. They rebelled against him. We'll find out in verse 13, they forgot God's works and therefore gave themselves over to lustful cravings. You'll see in verse 19, they exchanged the glory of God for the glory of a calf because according to verse 21, they forgot their God. And when they finally made it to the promised land, we'll see in verse 24, they actually despised the land flowing with milk and honey. 
In verse 28, we see that they begin to yoke themselves with the pagans who were in the promised land and begin to even eat sacrifices to the dead. In verse 36, we read they begin to serve the idols of that land. And then we finally come to the last sin that is listed here in verse 37. As we read, uh, tragically, they sacrifice their sons and their daughters to the demons. This will be the last sin that's mentioned in this catalog of sin. We're not sure why they stopped here. Perhaps it is because you cannot get any more sinful. You can't go any lower than this. It is John Piper who writes, this was the bottom of the downward spiral of dethroning God. They killed their children. End quote. Of course, this is not the only place we see of this tragedy in Scripture. We read elsewhere a number of other places of this practice that Israel gave itself to. Uh, Exodus 16, you slaughter my children. Excuse me, Ezekiel 16, you slaughter my children and deliver them up as an offering by fire. In 2 Kings in verse, uh, chapter 17, we read they burn their sons and daughters as offerings. And that's explained here in Psalm 106. You see very strong language is used, isn't it? As we read in verse 38, they poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. Such an act is, is almost unimaginable, isn't it? And yet I would suggest to you it is the very act that we are doing by the thousands in America day after day. So if you'll allow me to draw six parallels this morning between the terrible practice of Israel, Israel's practice of child sacrifice, and the American practice of elective abortion. First of all, they are both sacrifices to idols. You see very clearly this is an act of worship of false gods, of idols, we see in verse 36, as we've seen, they served idols. Again, in verse 38, they poured out innocent blood, the bloods of sons and daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. You notice the language sacrifice is used. A sacrifice is when you give up something valuable. Normally, in this case, it would be a sheep or a goat or a lamb in order to get something better from a deity. And yet, what they're giving up is children. They're giving up their children. So the baby according to this ancient practice, was killed in order to get something better from some god. Which is, of course, uh, I would suggest why the vast majority of women in America have abortions. 86% of post-abortive women have declared that they have had the abortion because of the negative impact the child will have upon their life. The options are, include if the child will interrupt their education, the hardship of being a single mom, they're done having kids, they're not ready to start having kids, they can't afford a kid. In other words, the, the, the child comes in, t in way of their future dreams. Uh, it, it comes in the way of their ambitions. So the child is given up in order that something better might be received. Uh, uh, shame might be covered, that you might be able to advance your career. The same practice was happening in ancient Israel as happened today. Though, though the child certainly is not given up to a deity, I would suggest to you that an abortion, an idol, is being served. In fact, I even think the language in which we use about abortion is uh, the language of idolatry. We talk about a woman's right to choose. Right? A woman has the right to decide who lives and who dies. Consider the words of Mary Elizabeth William in her article on January 23rd, 2013, entitled, So What If Abortion Ends Life? She writes, 
here's the complicated reality in which we live. All life is not equal. A fetus can be a human life without having the same rights as the woman in whose body it resides. She is the boss. Her life and what is in her, uh, what is right for her circumstances should automatically trump the rights of the entity inside of her always. End quote. So yes, she admits, it's a life. It's a human life. But we have the power to decide whether that life lives or dies. And if that life gets in the way of my dreams, my ambitions, my plans, then I have the right, a woman has the right to choose to take that life. That is idolatrous language. It is a sacrifice to idols. Secondly, I would suggest to you that both practices were a, a sacrifice of children. You see very clearly the psalmist wants to identify what's going on here. As you see there in verse 37, is it? They sacrifice their sons and daughters. These are not sheep. These are not lambs. These are little boys and little girls. We've already seen, by the way, in the context of abortion, uh, two mothers testify that these are children in their wombs. Of course, what women know, mothers know intuitively, science proves to be true. At week eight of development, the time in which most abortions are performed between week eight and verse, uh, week ten, we know that at this point, babies suck their thumbs, babies respond to sounds, babies give evidence that they dream. We know that the baby's heart is pumping, the liver's making cells, their kidneys are clearing fluid. When they're poked with a needle by eight weeks, they recoil from that needle. Do you know why? Needles hurt, right? And so the baby feels pain. When I uh, had the great uh, fortune of uh, being able to see the, the baby in my, in my wife's womb seven different times, we asked, and perhaps you asked the same question of the ultrasound tech, we, we, well, let me put it this way. We didn't ask, will it be a boy or a girl? We asked, is it a boy or a girl? Right? And then she told me, well, it's a boy, it's a girl. Right? How do they know? Because the baby has all their parts. And of course, what science has, has proven and what women know intuitively, the Bible has been declaring it. From the very beginning, we're told both Jeremiah and Paul are formed by God in their mother's womb. And at that point, when God is forming them, they both testify, you knew me by name. We know that John the Baptist, when he is in the womb of his mother Elizabeth, recognizes by the Holy Spirit that Jesus is in his presence, who is, by the way, at that time, in the womb of his mother Mary. In fact, Elizabeth would say to the pregnant Mary, uh, referred to her as the mother of my Lord. The very word used for baby in, in reference in scripture to the child in the womb is the exact same word that's used of Jesus when the babe was laid in the manger, when the babies were brought to Jesus. Same word, because the inhabitant of the womb is a baby. Now I want you to realize this, in, in contrary to the arguments that are bantered about in order to support uh, this, this what, what our country has decided, a constitutional right to abortion. We say we have the right to privacy. Well, of course we have the right to privacy. Unless you're pl planning to harm somebody. And if you're planning to harm somebody, we have laws that rightly invade your privacy in order to protect the person you intend to harm. You say, well, I have a freedom to choose. Well, yes, we have freedom to choose some things. But we can't choose to harm people. We don't have the freedom to, to harm people. We don't have the freedom to eliminate your child if they become inconvenienced. We don't have that freedom. Well, you say, if you make abortion illegal, we're going to drive women into the back alleys. 
right? We're going to have back alley abortions. And I think there are many different responses we could come to that. But just simply in the context of this being a child, if it is a baby in her womb, should we then make it easier for them to take that baby's life? Right? If robbing a store is dangerous, should we make it safer for thieves? No, we should not, of course. Well, it's the woman's body, we're told. Well, if it's a baby, it's not the woman's body. It's the baby's body. Now, the baby's in her body, there is no doubt, but the baby is not the woman's body. It is the baby's. And by the way, if you think you can do whatever you want with your body, right? It's my body, I do whatever I want. Try driving home uh, this, this morning after church 100 miles an hour, right? Try, we'll see what happens then. So your body, you do whatever you want. Try being drunk and drive. Can you do that? No, you can't do that. Why? You might hurt somebody. You're going to put people in danger, right? You cannot do whatever you want with your body when it comes to hurting other people, when you place them in danger, except for abortion. Because at that point, for some reason in our land, logic no longer matters. Now consider the insanity of abortion in the story of a baby named Rachel. Rachel's two months old, but she is still six weeks away from being a full-term baby. She was born prematurely at 24 weeks in the middle of her mother's second trimester. On the day of her birth, Rachel weighed one pound, nine ounces, but dropped to just under a pound soon after. She was so small she could rest in the palm of her daddy's hand. She was a tiny living human person. Heroic measures were taken to save her life. Why? Because we have an obligation to protect, nurture, and care for other humans who would die without our help, especially little children. Rachel was a vulnerable, invaluable human being. But get this, the author writes, if a doctor came into the hospital room and instead of caring for Rachel, took the life of this little girl as she lay, lay quietly nursing at her mother's breast, that would be homicide. However, if the same little girl, that very same Rachel, was inches away, resting inside her mother's womb, she could legally be killed by abortion. Third, you consider that both practices are a sacrifice to demonic forces. What does the author of Hebrews write there in verse 37? They sacrifice their sons and daughters to the demons. It's just not idols. There's, there's a demon behind these idols. Idols and the demonic beings are connected. We see this in Scripture. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, what pagans sacrifice to idols, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be a participant with demons. Paul says behind demons is not God, but is a world, behind idols is not God, but a world of demons. And I, I believe, I, I, with all my heart, and perhaps you do as well, that behind our idols, behind our systems and our beliefs uh, that distort God and destroy his image bearer is an a army of spiritual powers of evil. And I'm not alone in believing this, by the way. In an article entitled That They Might Have Life, written in 2006, prominent scholars, both Roman Catholic and Protestant, would write, and I quote them, the blindness of so many to this moral atrocity has many sources but is finally to be traced to the seductive ways of evil advanced by Satan. Jesus says he was a murderer from the beginning, end quote. 
We, we stunningly read in Revelation chapter 12 that behold, a great red dragon, of course a reference to the devil himself, stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. The devil hates the image of God that we each bear and is happy to see as many killed as possible. It was Michael Card who wrote, I think powerfully, now every age has heard it, the voice that speaks from hell, sacrifice your children. And for you, it will be well. Abortion ultimately is not an economic issue. Ultimately, it is not a cultural issue. Ultimately, it is not a philosophical issue, a political issue, a judicial issue, even a moral issue. It is fundamentally, at its very core, a spiritual issue. In fact, consider the words of Judith Feltro, a former abortionist with Planned Parenthood, who would speak of their commitment in religious terms. She writes, the abortion clinic was our church. Abortion was the sacrament. The babies were the sacrifice. I say the clinic was our church because the clinic was where we truly worshipped women's reproductive freedom. End quote. In other words, it all appears very secular and very clinical and very sterile. And when, when behind all that, in truth, it is, I think, very demonic. How, I don't know any other way to explain the, the unexplainable blindness that we have to the terrible violence that is taking place in our land. I would suggest to you, fourthly, that it is a sacrifice that pollutes the land. Look what the Bible says in verse 38 in regard to the sacrifice of ancient Israel. As you see the very end of that passage, and the land was polluted with blood. As they sacrifice their children to demonic forces, and as we do today, on the altar of abortion and the temples of Planned Parenthood, we pollute our land. We make this an unclean country. And one wonders, how long will God forbear with us? You note verse 40, then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. I understand considering all this is uncomfortable, and difficult, it's not a sermon that I am excited to preach, perhaps one you're not excited to hear, it's hard to think about, and yet uh, I, I'm committed to do so every third Sunday in January, and I am committed to do so for many reasons, but let me tell you perhaps the chief reason in my heart why I continually beat this drum, because I want to prepare you, I want to prepare every single one of you, for the day in which you might encounter an unexpected pregnancy in your life or the life of someone you dearly love. A friend, a child, a niece, a granddaughter. I want to prepare you for that, knowing that one out of eight abortions in America are committed by those who identify as evangelical Christians, like you. And so before that crisis comes up, before, before that event occurs, I want there to be such a hatred for abortion in your heart that it would never enter your mind. I want you to know, this is why we invite Mosaic here almost every year, I want you to know not only a ministry that exists for you to volunteer at and to support, I want you to know there's a ministry that exists to serve you in case you ever have that need, there are people who love you, people who walk with you, people who care for you in that time. 
I want you to be aware of this. And of course, if one out of eight women who have had abortions identify as evangelicals, there might be some here who have experienced an abortion. Or some here who have encouraged an abortion. Or some here who have paid for an abortion. And so many, I think, within our churches, silently carry around this great condemnation in their heart. The devil is an accuser, and he doesn't stop his attacks once the abortion is complete. I think Russell Moore is right when he wrote, no one is more pro-choice than Satan on the way to the abortion clinic, and no one is more pro-life than Satan on the way out. Promises of freedom and relief are quickly turned into accusations and assaults on the soul. What seemed like the only way on Friday feels like an unthinkable atrocity on Sunday where many are convinced that the preacher's words about forgiveness and mercy apply to everyone else but them. And I tell you, based upon the authority of the word of God, that is not true. As we consider fifthly this morning, that these are sacrifices that God will forgive. God will forgive. What was it that Jesus said of the woman of great iniquity? I tell you, though her sins are many, she is forgiven. Christ has died for sinners. Christ has risen for sinners. And therefore, Scripture is unequivocal in its glorious declaration. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so I will share with you the same sentence I have said every pro-life sermon I have given for the last 10 or 14 years. The gospel is the best news in the world for those who condemn themselves for having participated in an abortion. There is no better news than the gospel of Jesus Christ. God does not look upon any Christian with a scarlet A, He looks at us through the very righteousness of Jesus. And therefore, your sin, including your abortion, does not define you. Jesus defines you. And we're told this even in this psalm as you look in verse 44. Nevertheless, which is a stunning word. Just stop there. Nevertheless, that is in spite of them sacrificing their sons and daughters to demons. What? Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For for their sake, he remembered his covenant, and he relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. I think, I just find this utterly astonishing. They are killing their children. You say, well, God even forgive that. Yes, he will. It is unequivocal in Scripture. He will, and he will forgive out of the abundance, according to the psalmist, out of the abundance of his steadfast love. God's love is abundant. God's love is steadfast. Whether we have had many abortions or we've been indifferent to the millions of abortions taking place, God's love is steadfast upon us, which is why I think it ends with these glorious phrase, once again in verse 48, blessed be the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, praise the Lord. Why praise the Lord? Why praise God? 
Because he forgives out of abundant and steadfast love. A truth one sister in Christ experienced as God poured out grace upon her. She writes of her story, when I saw that pregnancy test, I was scared to death. I was 20 and attending a Christian college. It was not okay to be pregnant. But at the same time, the thought of the baby already growing inside of me brought me unbelievable joy. I remember actually forcing myself to stop smiling before I went to tell my boyfriend the results of the pregnancy test. When I walked in, he was sitting there with a phone book open to Planned Parenthood. You can't have this baby, he said. It will ruin my future. How blind I was. I was convinced I had no choice. I couldn't tell anyone. I was ashamed. There seemed to be no escape. And the boy acted like this was the easiest, simplest, and most obvious choice on the planet. He even called Planned Parenthood for me and I sat there, as I sat there sobbing on the bed. He would have made the appointment for me too, but the lady on the phone said I had to do it. So there I sat sobbing into the phone. And she, made me, she let me make the appointment. She didn't ask if this was what I really wanted. She didn't suggest that I call her back after I had calmed down. No, I was sobbing so uncontrollably I could barely speak, but she scheduled the appointment anyway. And I went. It seems so obvious now, just don't go. But in that moment, I was 20, I was in love, I was scared, and I was alone. My boyfriend didn't want to talk about it. He told me to move on. I held it in. I told no one. I became depressed, filled with suicidal thoughts, and eventually had a severe panic attack. But still, I kept silent. I became a very good actress. I could fake a smile like nobody's business. I was so afraid people would judge me and hate me for what I did. I hated me for what I did. I wanted to die. I killed my baby. I didn't deserve to live. So I went on pretending, going through the motions, and crying myself to sleep every night. My life went on like this for another two or three years until finally one night I revealed to my roommate who didn't judge me or hate me but supported me and loved me. Over those years of secrecy and, and in the few years following, when I started to open up to a few people, I began learning about grace. Growing up in the church, I thought I knew what grace was, but I had no idea. I didn't want God to forgive me for what I had done. But as a wise woman said to me that if I don't accept God's forgiveness and grace, that's like saying Jesus dying on the cross wasn't enough. Is that what I was saying? God's sacrifice on the cross, his grace and mercy being poured out on this broken and sinful world wasn't enough to take away my sin. It took years to sink in. But now I know that when Jesus hung there on that cross, with the sins of the world bearing down on his perfect soul, he saw me. He saw me lying in that abortion clinic 2,000 years later. He knew what I was going to do. He gave his life for me anyway. He took the punishment of that sin, my sin, as well as every other sin I've committed. Knowing this, I was set free. She concludes saying, we are all guilty, but God doesn't want me to live a life filled with guilt. He wants me to live a life filled with joy. I 
And now, when I think about my baby, my heart misses her and my arms long for her, but I know I am forgiven. I can live my life, and I have peace and hope, knowing in the next life, when I get to my real home, I will see her again. My friends, I tell you that our only hope in this matter and all other matters is blood-bought grace. There's not a person who does not need the grace of Jesus Christ. I tell you, he offers it to you even now. He will pour out grace and mercy and forgiveness upon you. Say, what must I do? Well, we're told here in verse 44, are we not? Look again, nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. If you were to cry out to him, he will forgive you. If you were to cry out to him, he will save you. If you were to cry out, be merciful to me, a sinner, he will be merciful. For Christ has died to pay for sin and risen from the dead. And we, we unite ourselves to him by trusting in him through faith and receiving his grace through that act of faith. Let me lastly conclude by saying this is a sacrifice that must end. When you receive the gospel, what must you do? Well, turn over to verse 3. Notice the commands here of our Lord when it says, Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. What must we do? We must seek justice for the oppressed. We must pursue righteousness. That might mean some of you need to offer a hand. To, to hate abortion is good, but it doesn't do anything. But we must promote justice. We must actively promote the causes of justice for those who cannot speak for themselves. We must support causes like Mosaic and many others. Of course, Mosaic is not the only ministry that's supporting the sanctity of human life. I'm so thankful for our partnership with Tree of Life as they support the poor in our community, uh, uh, valuing human life. Many of you uh, give to those ministries. Many of you should. Many of you volunteer. I encourage you to find out more how you can partner with Mosaic. I know for my family, becoming a foster family was incredibly important for us acting out of our convictions of the sanctity of human life and then going on to become an adoptive family. We need to get busy. We need to offer a hand in order to see this end. Of course, even beyond this, we need to get on our knees and ask God to change this land and change hearts and help the confused and save the perishing and bind up the broken. And perhaps chiefly, we need to ask God to forgive our sin in this land. I do tell you that one day, one day abortion will end. There will be no more abortions. And I don't know if that day come, is coming soon or it's going to be a while, but it will end whether it happens before or on the day when Jesus Christ returns. And it will be one of the reasons we praise God as we enter into heaven that we no longer do this to our children. It will end. We will praise God for it. Perhaps we ought to practice praising God for that great day. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, praise the Lord. Our Father in heaven, you are worthy of our praise even as we have considered the depth of our own sin in our land. We do ask you to heal this country. 
There seems to be so much wrong with us in our day. It is not to deny that this is a wonderful country in which we see many of your blessings and we praise you for it. And yet there is a great deal of sin here. So we ask you for help. We do pray, dear Father, that you would change hearts, that you would change our country, you would help the confused, that you would save the perishing, that you would bind up the broken, and that you would forgive our sins. And we pray for those here who carry the burden of decisions regarding past abortions. We ask, Father, that you would let them know of the great and amazing forgiveness found in Christ, that the forgiveness that they receive in Jesus would abound in praise and honor to your name, that they would be overwhelmed that, that they can receive such grace from you. And we pray for those of us who one day will encounter a pregnancy that is unexpected, perhaps meeting us in difficult situations. We pray that we would have the strength and the trust in you to walk through that in a way that is faithful to you, knowing that you will care for us. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.